a special edition of our show, Herstory. On the rocks! With Katie. And Allie. Normally we'd be hanging out just the two of us with a couple of cocktails talking about famous women in history. But sometimes we like to talk to people who are writing about history and some women that aren't famous but maybe should be more well known way more famous we have a very special guest here with us today sarah Devello. welcome to the show oh my gosh i'm so excited to be here thanks so much for having me we're excited to have you sarah is a true crime novelist and the founder and host of the popular author interview series mystery and thriller mavens she's here with us today to talk about her upcoming book very shortly upcoming book broadway butterfly can you tell us a little bit about yourself yes so i started out in the corporate world where i did pr and marketing for a variety of different companies primarily financial services and i realized on day one at 9:05 a.m this was not for me but i stayed and i did it because i had this you know pesky student loans to repay and eventually car payments and mortgages and all those real world you know bills that weigh us all down mm-hmm. um all the while knew that i wanted to be a writer but didn't quite have the courage to just say you know this is it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to go for it. Um, And so finally I did. And I wrote my first book in 2013. And now I'm pivoting, changing genres, dipping a toe into mystery. And Broadway Butterfly comes out this summer. Well, we're so excited to get into this book. Uh, But first we have to talk about the cocktail we made for it. (laughs) Yay! So this is obviously called Broadway Butterfly, and I wanted to make something a very fun color. So it's blue, kind of like a butterfly. Um, So you muddle blueberries in the bottom of a cocktail shaker. You add gin, lime juice, and blue curacao, and you shake it, strain it into a glass, and garnish it with blueberries. Look how blue. Oh, my gosh. It's beautiful. It's really pretty. Oh my gosh, I love it. The Broadway <laughs> butterfly. And it tastes good too. It is. Yeah, it does taste good. <laughs> Perfect summer drink. Yeah. <laughs> drink it while you're reading. Yeah. Broadway <laughs> butterfly starting August 1st. Okay. So before we dive into your book, can we set the scene a little bit? The fo- the book follows a murder investigation in 1923 in Manhattan. So what is life like, especially for young women and young flappers on the scene in Manhattan at this time? Yeah. So the 1920s is a really fascinating time for women. So in 1920, some women were given the right to vote, by which I mean white women, a a right that was withheld from black and indigenous women until as late as 1965. But in 1920, the first women were given the right to vote in America. And that really started to open things up. So that's the first factor we need to look at. The second factor is World War One had just ended and the world had just survived its first pandemic, which was the Spanish flu. So there's this double sort of feeling of, oh my God, I'm alive. You know, I made it through the war. I made it through the pandemic. And there was this joyful joie de vivre, this zest for life. Additionally, the economy is booming. There's a huge influx of money. People have, you know, more than they've ever had before. And because of technology, like cars, like refrigeration, like electricity, now you're not tied to going out and harvesting your food or buying your food every single day because of the magic of refrigeration. You can keep your food for a week. So now you've got more time on your hands and you've got more money to do things with. And you've got a car so you can get yourself wherever you want to go. 
And because of electricity, now you're not limited to darkness. The world is safer for women and everyone to be out and about in cities because, you know, everybody knows more things, bad things happen in the dark. So now you've got all of these factors sort of, you know, marinating and whirling around to create this intoxicating cocktail of I'm alive, I have time, I have money, I have freedom, I can get myself where I need to go. And so there's this incredible energy in the world. Now, at this time, about 20% of women worked outside the home to now in America. Now, now 2023, about 40% of women work outside the home. But back then, it was less than half of that. And women primarily worked in factories as telephone operators or in sale, you know, in stores as, as shop assistants, as sales, sales girls now, or in, dom- in domestic service as maids. Now, what's really interesting is that Julia Hartman, who's the lead character in this book, works in newspapers. Now, this particular type, there were 3,500 members of the union, um, the newspaper union in New York, 3,500 members. Compare that to 35 members of women in newspaper club in New York. So we're talking a 1%, about a 1% ratio. So imagine being one of 35 in a world of 3,500, right? You are 1% of this population. And the very few women who worked in newspapers did what's called the ladies' pages. So, So they wrote about cooking astrology, advice for the lovelorn. And then they covered the so-called society pages of fashion, what the celebrity of the, the celebrities of the time were doing, which were the women of society, the very, very wealthiest echelon. And so it was like, what are they wearing? What are the style trends? What do the hats look like? What do the shoes look like? And that's what the women primarily covered. But Julia works on the hard-hitting crime beat. She is the rare woman who not only works outside the home, who not only works in newspapers, but who doesn't cover the ladies' pages. She is on the city desk. She is in the trenches with the men covering violent murders and crimes and robberies and all of these things that are too shocking for women's delicate sensibilities to be covering, but she is doing it. She is a history-making woman And nobody knows about her. She has been denied her rightful place in history. So it is time to unveil the truth of the extraordinary Julia Hartman and let her take her rightful place in history. Or should I say her story? (laughs) That's how we say it. (laughs) I mean, I totally agree. And one of my favorite things that people have been asking over the last couple of years is like, well, why do women love true crime now? I'm like, that is not a new thing, okay? (laughs) Especially women have been interested in this for a long time. And I think that... Julia Hartman is such a great example of that. And she's really, she's getting in there. And the case that she is investigating in this book is the case, the murder of Dot King. Yes. And that's the Broadway butterfly. Yes. So before we get further into Julia, I would like to set the scene too for Dot. Who is she? Why is she called the Broadway butterfly? And what happens to her and to kind of spur on these events? So Dot King is a very different kind of woman than Julia Hartman is. So like Julia, she's the daughter of an immigrant. So Julia's father was a German Jewish immigrant. Dot is the daughter of two Irish immigrants. So her father is a night watchman at Wanamaker's, which is a department store. And her mother is a laundress. So she works at a laundry. 
So she comes from a very, very modest background. Julia came from some more means uh, down in Memphis, Tennessee. She came from a family of means. Her father and her uncle ran a tobaccoery. So they were tobacco dealers. They have, you know, some money. Dot's family does not come from money. They live in an apartment um, on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, right at the at, uh, where it abuts Harlem. So they live in an area that's newly gentrifying. Um, they, you know, are are very much, you know, immig- working class immigrants. Um, Dot starts to work at the laundry, and then she gets married when she's seventeen years old. It doesn't work out, and she gets married on her seventeenth birthday. And I just think that's so interesting because you can picture a 16-year-old girl thinking, wouldn't it be romantic to get married on my birthday, right? Like it's just such a young, hopeful thing, (laughs) you know, to do. Well, not surprisingly, that marriage doesn't work out. She moves back home and like a lot of women, she cuts her hair, she bobs it to chin length and she starts wearing shorter skirts, you know, not down to the floor anymore. And her family is not okay with this. They kick her out. And so she has to move out and and get a job and, and make her way. So she starts to work as a model because she's very beautiful. She's known as the most beautiful woman in, in, in Manhattan, in New York. And then she starts to make some very powerful friends. So her circle of friends eventually spans the gamut from the underbelly of Broadway all the way up to the White House. She has an incredible network and she starts to get involved with some unsavory characters doing some possibly illicit, illegal things. But she starts to make a lot of money. And with that money comes power because now she can afford to live where she wants. She can buy the clothes that she wants. She can do what she wants. She can date who she wants. She's living life on her terms. And she doesn't care what society says. She doesn't care what her her mom or her brothers think. She is doing it her way. And I think there's something really fascinating about that. Yeah. And then her maid or her housekeeper is also an important woman in this story. Can you tell us a little bit about Ella Bradford and how she's involved in all this? So Ella Bradford is another fascinating real life person. So Ella is one of the 7 million black Americans who were part of what is called the Great Migration. So in the wake of the Civil War and Jim Crow era discriminatory laws, she and and 7 million other black Americans migrate out of the South, North and East, up to Chicago, to DC, Philadelphia, and New York in search of better, in search of better, better chances, better life. So Ella lived in Jacksonville, Florida. She's from Jacksonville, Florida. So when she left Jacksonville, it was segregated, legally segregated. So Ella sat in, in what, you know, the quote unquote colored waiting room where black people had to sit separately than white people. She then had to get on the quote unquote colored car on the train and sit separate from white people. And then she gets to New York and New York is not segregated. So all of a sudden she can sit where she wants. She can live where she wants. She can go where she wants. She can do anything. And she lives up in Harlem, which is then and still is a predominantly black neighborhood in New York, a thriving, vibrant, incredible black neighborhood. And she's, you know, which is happening in the Harlem Renaissance where all these great thinkers, musicians, poets, writers are congregating. Langston Hughes, I mean, just so many incredible thinkers are creating incredible art, music, writing, poetry, books. And so she's living in this vibrant environment neighborhood. She gets a job in Midtown on West 57th Street working for Dot. And this would have been very, she would have felt good about this because she would have been thinking, I work in Midtown, (laughs) 
right? Like I work in a, in a, you know, in a, in a, fancy neighborhood on West 57th street is a very fancy street. And she's got a job for a white woman. And according to the research that I did and um, a lot of the black experts that I interviewed, she would have taken a lot of pride and power from that. She also was making really good money because Dot King was up to some scandalous things. So she was paying extra (laughs) to keep things quiet. Ella becomes her closest friend, her only confidant and the keeper of all her secrets. So Ella and Dot are more than just boss and employee. They are friends. Dot tells Ella everything. And later when Ella finds her murdered, because Ella's the one who finds the body, and no spoilers here. This is on in chapter one, the first three pages. Um, she then becomes an integral source of information to the police because she knows more than anyone else. Mm. And I just love that we have these three women. We have a flapper, a journalist, and a housekeeper. Yes. <laughs> Living in this time where like, as you said, women are newly kind of public figures. <laughs> yes. So is there a difference between how these three women are perceived in society and how does that affect just like how they move around the world right now? Yeah. Oh my God. That's such a good question. So these are three very different women living very different lives, right? So Julia is Jewish and Southern, and she has come to this city um, to test her mettle, you know, in the Big Apple. So she's been working as a crime reporter down in Memphis. She wants to give it a try up in New York, right? A lot of people go to New York because they want to see if they can make it. She is one of them. And she goes on to become not just a leading female reporter, but a leading reporter for regardless of gender. Like the men at the New York Times are scrambling to keep up with Julia Hartman. She is the hot ticket to beat in on the crime beat in New York City. So that is her life. She can go places that other women can't go because she is interviewing people. She also happens to be, all of these women in their own way are incredibly courageous. So she is going into places where gangsters hang out and interviewing really dangerous people. She, you know, on another case, she followed a a suspected murderer to a drafty shack and spent the, rented the room next to him to listen with her ear against the wall to see if, because he was ranting and raving and talking to himself and she was listening to see if she could hear a confession. (laughs) I mean, I I would be nowhere near that guy. He just killed someone. (laughs) You know, she just was so, so brave and she could go places that other women couldn't. Ella, also incredibly brave, goes to New York, you know, tries to, you know, in search of a better, making a better life for herself and her family. Um, she, you know, is, is, is trying to, New York at the time is not segregated, but there is still racism. So she's trying to navigate a, as they all are, the biggest city in the country, right? It still had a population about 8 million, which is interesting. The population of New York is still about 8 million, <laughs> um, And so you're navigating this incredibly big, overwhelming, intimidating, fast, competitive, expensive city. And you're trying to keep your head above, above water there. Your Ella is also dealing with, um, you know, issues of racism and discrimination. She has to make her way in a still predominantly white world where she isn't always treated fairly. And so she's trying to navigate that. She also finds herself smack dab in the middle of a white lady murder. So she, as a black woman, so she has to navigate white police, white rules. Um, you know, she's got, she ha- is just trying to, to survive and get through this as well. 
Then we've got, you know, a dot who was trying to make her way in the world and trying to figure out how she could survive out on her own, having just been kicked out of her family's house and told, you know, my way or the highway. So she took the highway and she's trying to figure out how to pay rent and how to get by. And so seeing these, you know, and, and everybody's trying to survive that, you know, all cre- living creatures try to s- seek survival first. And so watching these women try to navigate the city at this particular time is really an interesting adventure. Yeah. And I mean, if people aren't already like titulated enough with <laughs> that information, I mean, a huge theme in this story is corruption. Yes. Why did this murder shine a light on the larger problems that are already happening in the city? Oh, that's a really good question. So I think because Dot was so connected to so many powerful men in so many different realms of financial power, political power, illicit illegal power, um, you know, the gangster underworld, she's involved with the most powerful man of everything illegal in New York City. (laughs) And she's also involved with, you know, connections that lead right up to the White House. It doesn't get more powerful than that. And then she's got some other, you know, really crazy, almost sort of mind boggling, can't believe it's true, but it is true because it's true. It's a true story, you know, connections to these, to, to the men who are literally running the world as we know it. And so when she turns up dead, it is inconvenient to say yeah. the least. <laughs> and everybody wants this to go away fast. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem. Yeah. Because if things go away fast, mm-hmm. she's denied justice. And there's the central rub. Right. Yeah. And I love that you point out again that this is a true story because I don't know if we really <laughs> made that very clear. Uh-huh. And I love that. One of the points that you make is that you wrote this book with a cultural sensitivity because this does involve real people. What exactly does that mean to you? And how did you ensure that victims and families of the victim were being respected while telling this story? Thank you so much for asking that. So that was my absolute top priority. I wrote this story to honor these real life people and their choices and their lives and their messy, complicated truths. And every day when I would sit down, I would center myself and I would set the intention to tell the story with integrity and to honor them. Because I always think about what if someone (laughs) wrote a book about me? I would be like, hey, get it right, okay? (laughs) Don't rush (laughs) Don't be, don't be too quick. Don't be hasty. Take your time. (laughs) Don't jump to any conclusions. And when, you know, like I always think about these people who write, you know, a biography of Princess Diana or Harry and Meghan or, you know, this famous person or that famous person. And I'm like, but are you sure you got it right? Because we're all messy and complicated. And think about how vulnerable that is if someone wrote a book about, you, you know, Allie or Katie, like, how would you feel about that? You'd be like, get it right, get it right. Yeah. And so I want to, I would, I want to get it right. And so I think the first and most important thing was getting, it was setting that intention. Mm-hmm. Let me get it right. Let me spend the time. Let me tell the truth. Let me, if there's complicated 
conflicting information. Let me put that in there because we're complicated, conflicting people. And then, so I think setting that intention is the most important thing. The cultural sensitivity is, you know, as a white woman who's not Jewish, I want to make sure that I get it right in telling the stories of people who are different than me. So I interviewed a ton of experts. So I talked to professors of Jewish history, of Southern Jewish history, of journalism, of women in journalism, you know, women in journalism and history, like everyone who I could find who specialized in these topics. And I, cause I wanted to get it right. And then I also worked with Dr. Bernadine Nash McClam, who is a very dear friend of mine and the most learned person I know who has a doctorate and a master's in divinity from Harvard and an MBA from Harvard and a master's in social work and a PhD. <laughs> like she's amazing. And I worked and she also happens to be black. And I worked with her very closely, you know, over the course of the nine years that it took me to research and write this book to say, help me get it right. I'm here to listen. You know, and she really helped me not just with Ella, but with Detective Coughlin, you know, help me to get it right. And I think it's really important for me as a white woman to listen, to be humble, to not be defensive and to, to open my ears and open my mind and, and to, to listen, tell me what your truth, tell me what your truth is, tell me what it's like. And then to, to put that on to the page and then ask, you know, people, to, experts in the field with lived experience in this, you know, in this body, in the skin, in this experience, did I get it right? Can I do it better? And I also worked with a sensitivity reader. I hired my own sensitivity reader, Dr. Pure, uh, Piper Hugley, who's a professor of English literature at Clark University and an author herself. And I asked her, you know, tell me what I rip me apart. Tell me how I got it. Tell me what I can do better. And then my publisher also hired a sensitivity reader just to make sure we really spent the time to try to get it right. Yeah. I mean, and it sounds like, you know, your research, your interviews, your mindset, you're in so much of like a great place while writing this book, but who did you stumble upon first? Like what drew you in? Was it Dot that you stumbled upon? Was it Ella? Was it Julia? Who did you land on? Francis. Okay. So I was, I'm from Philadelphia. So I was home for home in Philly for Thanksgiving as I go home for Thanksgiving every year. And you know, the day after Thanksgiving, there's not a lot to do if you're not hitting the sales, which we were not because we're sane. And so we're having our leftover turkey sandwiches and you know, the filling and the mashed potatoes and everything, my favorite. And my aunts and uncles and cousins are sitting around reminiscing and my uncle Ed starts to reminisce. He always starts telling old stories and whatever. And he starts to reminisce that back in the 60s in high school, he and my uncle David used to sneak over to the old castle where they'd sneak cigarettes and have beers after class. <laughs> and I was like, and I was like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Wait, what castle? You know? <laughs> and and he said, Oh, there used to be this huge grand estate in the next um you know, development over. My aunt lives in a very normal suburban development. Everything's a split level ranch, 1950s style split level ranch. And I'm looking around and I'm like, I've never seen a castle. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? So all 11 of us jump into three cars. We caravan over a quarter, you know, a mile away, whatever it was. And they're in the middle of the next split level ranch, suburban development, right between the Subarus and the tulip beds <laughs> are the ruins of a freaking castle. <laughs> 
And so it's like, there's a tulip bed, there's a Subaru, there's a headless statue of Diana. There's a 50-foot pillar towering in the air. There's, a, you know, a, a, a statue of where a fountain used to gurgle and the remnants of the pool that the fountain gurgled into. And there's a Belvedere. I mean, a, a still standing actual, you know, garden. It was, it was so bizarre. It was I literally feel like, I mean, you, you feel like you're standing in Athens or Rome, except you're in Philadelphia, suburban Philadelphia next to somebody's house. I mean, it's just so weird. And so I went down the rabbit hole. What the heck is this place? And I learned everything about this place, which is called White Marsh Hall. It was the third largest private home in the country. It was it's bigger than the White House. It had 147 rooms. It had three floors above ground, three floors below 27 bathrooms, 24 fireplaces, a staff of 70 full-time gardeners just to maintain the grounds. I mean, <laughs> it was we're from Baltimore. This is yeah. not making we're sense. We're from Baltimore, so we're not <laughs> no, we know the area. <laughs> Listen, Baltimore's not, not that far from Philly. You got to drive up and see this place. It's yeah. so crazy. <laughs> I mean, it's just so bizarre. And so I, and I, by the way, I have pictures of all of this and videos of all this on my website, sarahdevello.com slash behind the scenes. And I walk you around the grounds so you can see them. You can see these ruins. And so I, you know, I learned everything about this incredible grand estate. It was known as the Versailles of America. And, you know, after a while, I was like, okay, that was cool. Anyway, I'm not going to write the history of a castle, but that would be cool, but it's just not for me. And I put it aside, but I couldn't stop thinking about it. So a couple months later, I went back to it and I found in a 1953 um, book that said something, I can't remember the exact name of it, but it was something like, you know, the 100 most scandalous things to rock the Quaker city. Philadelphia is known as the Quaker city. And there was one paragraph with one line that referenced this property as being remotely connected to a murder. And I was like, that's my story. Yeah. Gosh. Well, I mean, we couldn't have asked for a better origin story than that. Um, so, (laughs) So I just, I love that. I love this interview. I can't wait for people to go out and get this book. It releases August 1st, correct? Yes. 12 more days couple days. We're so excited for people to go out and learn about Dot and Julia and Ella and just dive into this fascinating, connected (laughs) part of history. Oh my gosh. It is a crazy story. Yeah. Yeah. So where can people, um, you said your website, uh, where else can people find you online? Where can they find this book when it comes out? So I am a social media fiend. So I do it all. So you can find me on Instagram. That's my favorite. TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, threads. I do it all. It's very mysterious. Just my name, Sarah DeVello. <laughs> I'm hidden in plain sight. And um, yeah, so come hang out with me on social, any your social platform of your choice. And then I get I, I do have my website, which is sarahdevello.com. You can check out all the videos of the property and my research and see pictures of the people, which is really cool. So that's sarahdevello.com slash behind the scenes. So yeah, you can buy it anywhere you like to buy books. I like to support woman-owned independent bookstores. So Murder by the Book, which is my partner in crime in Houston, Texas, has a stash of books. Um, 
and uh, you know any independent bookstore or Amazon, Barnes and Noble, wherever you like to buy books, it's everywhere. And it's an audiobook and an ebook and a paper book and a hardcover book. So however you like to consume your books, <laughs> <laughs> perfect. Oh, I'm I know I'm so excited to mm-hmm. read more into it, and I know our listeners are going to love it. Yay! Well, thank you so much. This was so fun talking to you both. Yeah, what a blast. <laughs> listening to her story on the rocks we are independently produced by 1986 entertainment and proudly recorded in baltimore maryland if there's a woman in history you would like us to cover you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com you can also message us on twitter or instagram we post all of our cocktail recipes on tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us see you next week bye